Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. While the rest of the world still struggles with a deadly pandemic, Beijing has suppressed the spread of COVID-19 and is making the most of its opportunities in a changing world. At the same time, it is promoting the narrative, the East is rising while the West is declining. With me to discuss China's COVID exit plan is Chris Buckley, Chief China Correspondent for the New York Times. Thank you for joining me, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So if you could start by giving uh, those at home an impression of where China is with the COVID pandemic at the moment, and as the rest of the world is busy trying to vaccinate their population, what position does it find itself in now? Overall, at this point in the pandemic, I would say China finds itself in a fairly confident position, especially compared to the rest of the world. So even with uh, vaccines rolling out now, we see that certainly in the United States and Europe that uh, continued infections are a real problem. Uh, you know, it's going to take a while for economies to restart. China, for a number of reasons, was able to suppress infections within its borders pretty quickly last year, even beginning from, say, mid last year. It began the process of reviving its economy. Going into this year, it started rolling out its own vaccines as well. It's exporting those to the world. So if we think about a year ago when China was uh, just beginning to emerge from the worst of its pandemic, I think the leadership under Xi Jinping feels much more confident now, both about its domestic positioning and also about its standing in the world, despite all the tensions with the United States at the moment. So is there a difference in the narrative then between what China is telling us and what the reality is of the pandemic within their borders? That's a good question. It's a bit difficult for me to give you a, a fully scientific answer on that. I do think the weight of evidence, though, including scientific evidence, does suggest that while there may have been serious problems with underreporting of infections within China in the early weeks and months of, of the spread of the coronavirus, Subsequent to that, China's done a fairly effective job at stopping infections. Part of that is the sheer capacity of the Communist Party apparatus to stop people moving around when there's an outbreak and to send in hundreds, even thousands of medical workers to do trace testing and so on. So I do tend to think now that although there may be some undercounting, as there is in other countries as well, what we see across China in the official numbers is probably a fairly accurate reflection of the fact that overall the infection rates have gone right down, much lower than other larger countries. You were on the ground during the initial outbreak in Wuhan, uh, just as that was going into the point of lockdown. So mm. what impression did you get from the apparatus at play there and as to how they were handling it? And is that why you are reasonably confident that they're in good shape now because of what you saw in Wuhan? Yeah, it's been striking to see how those early months in Wuhan, which seemed so unique at the time, are sometimes in some ways played out in the rest of the world as well, where there's this initial phase of um, official complacency, uh, neglectfulness, and that period when governments are trying to mobilise without quite being there yet. So when I was in Wuhan for those first few weeks, I saw that process happening. 
I think now, because of the effectiveness of Chinese government propaganda and publicity, there's this idea that what happened in China in Wuhan to suppress infections happened in a very swift and effective way, a very lockstep way. But in fact, those first few weeks in Wuhan, it was very much a, a process of trial and error. And there was certainly error along with success along the way. But what we did see from January going into February and then by mid-March is that the government on the ground began to mobilise. And I think a key factor there is the organisational power of the Commerce Party at the grassroots. What you saw in the neighbourhoods of Wuhan, what you saw on the streets, it wasn't so much the police or even certainly not soldiers. The real grunt work of organising communities, of making sure that people stayed in their homes, of pulling people out of homes when they were suspected of being infected, a lot of that work was being done by these teams of local officials organised at the grassroots. Some of them were retired officials as well, and some of them were officials from the city government brought down to help with that effort. Mm. And you saw that replicated all across China in one way or another. During the first wave of the pandemic, China was very active in distributing masks to other countries. And while part of me acknowledges that there's a humanitarian element to this, uh, there is invariably, of course, the uh, propaganda aspect of it as well. Now it's very much continuing this with vaccines. So how is it using vaccine to its advantage and vaccine diplomacy? I think the fact is that after the coronavirus began to spread from China, last year, the government did lose credibility in the eyes of a lot of other governments and, and publics as well. And so what we've seen in the past few months as China's begun to ramp up vaccine production, I think answers a few needs. First of all, I do think they want to show the world as a whole and particularly their closest diplomatic partners that they're a, a valuable partner to have in times of trouble. And part of that is showing that you're willing to, to share vaccines around. So I, I think part of this is regaining credibility from last year. If we look at the spread of vaccines across the world, a lot of them are going to countries that already have prior close relations with China. But there's also a commercial element here as well. China, I think, has always wanted to be much more of a player in the global medical scene. And at a time when India in particular has become such a powerful producer of medicines, of medical supplies, China, despite its huge industrial capacity, has been a bit lagging. So I think part of this is also sort of general advertising for their medical capabilities as well, in particular because China in past years has had all of these uh, domestic scandals with vaccines that have been uh, poorly produced, that haven't been effective, potential health consequences for people taking them. So this is a chance for China to show that it's a, a much more credible partner. With question marks over their vaccines and the fact that they've developed their own, which they've kind of kept to themselves as to how they've gone through this process to some extent, is there a general distrust in areas of the world about this vaccine and what their motives could be for distributing it? I was just wondering how much you know the China factor plays into distribution of this vaccine. It does seem to. I mean, you do you do hear about, say, in Hong Kong, in Singapore, certainly in other parts of the world as well, this wariness about using Chinese vaccines, even when they're readily available. Mm. On the other hand, I think for large parts of the world, which are still suffering very widespread infections, 
Uh, what China has on offer is still attractive to governments and also to large parts of the population. I'm thinking of, in particular of Latin America, parts of the Middle East, Indonesia and other countries as well. If it's going to take much longer for other vaccines to come online, if these Chinese vaccines, if they're available now and within your grasp, you know, I think a lot of governments and populations in other countries feel that having something from China is better than having nothing at all. Mm -hmm. We've seen it closer to home as well with Papua New Guinea being encouraged to take the Chinese vaccines rather than wait around and rely on Australia expecting a handout. So, yeah. Exactly. I think it's a brutal calculus that other governments have to make. Mm. Let's turn now to the National Party Congress, which happened not too long ago, uh, in which Chinese proposed further changes in that it would weaken the pro-democratic movements in Hong Kong. What do you see the end game being with Hong Kong and how fast do you think we're going to see it? It's National People's Congress is the name of Sorry. this particular yes. one. China has a lot of congresses. <laughs> Everybody gets them mixed up. Anyway, this one, what we can see from those rules is a very concerted effort, which amounts to an effort to ensure that Hong Kong's legislature called the Legislative Council and the body of people that votes for the head of the Hong Kong government is called the chief executive, that those two bodies are effectively controlled by Beijing. Mm. So whereas before there was still some role to be played by the democratic opposition in Hong Kong, that role may not entirely disappear now, but it's going to be extraordinarily constricted. And it's going to be extraordinarily constricted because any candidates have to go through this very rigorous vetting process that includes vetting by national security agencies established by, by China. And there's no appeal from those decisions either. Ultimately, what it means is that Beijing is going to exercise veto over candidates right down to the um, legislative council level in Hong Kong. Mm. So that means even if there are any opposition candidates, there's the likelihood that they're going to be very compliant to Beijing's viewpoint? Well, they'll certainly have to be very, very careful about what they say in particular about the national security law, which has uh, aroused so much uh, criticism. So it's going to be a very difficult game for potential democratic candidates to play to, on the one hand, try to get on the ballot ticket, on the other hand, to avoid saying anything about the national security law or Chinese policy in general that gets them thrown off. Mm. Do you think it's going to get to the point where you can't make a clear distinction between how Hong Kong functions and how mainland China functions. I'm just wondering, this seems to be heading towards integration, maybe slowly, but still. I certainly wouldn't put myself as an expert on Hong Kong's legal and political system, <laughs> which is a realm into its own. I was actually talking to a professor in Hong Kong a couple of days ago, and he made a very sensible observation, I think, about where Hong Kong is headed. Hong Kong is going to be moving close to the mainland this framework which has governed Hong Kong since its return from British uh, rule in 1997 called One Country, Two Systems will remain in place. But now the two systems are going to be directly controlled by Beijing. So in other words, there's going to be still a separate set of laws, some distinctive features about Hong Kong operates, probably some freedoms that still aren't available in mainland China. But that system now is going to become much more heavily and directly controlled by Beijing in a way that 
wasn't the case uh, since 1997 in Hong Kong. Okay. Well, if we can uh, pivot the conversation again and now go on our whirlwind tour of uh, what's going on in China to international politics. So uh, Xi Jinping has recently been quoted as saying, the biggest source of chaos in the present day world is the United States. And uh, separately to that, the United States is the biggest threat to our country's development and security. We've already seen some changes since Joe Biden became president. How do you anticipate this relationship evolving between the two countries? You know, one of the other catchphrases that Xi Jinping uses all the time now is saying that the world is undergoing changes of the kind which it hasn't seen for over a century. So that's a way of communicating to Chinese officials and to the Chinese public that the world is in flux and there's a great deal of uncertainty. And the core of that, that uncertainty is about the future of the China-US relationship. And what we did see, uh, most obviously, under the Trump administration is a great deal of uh, tension emerging in the relationship over trade, technology policy, human rights issues, especially in Xinjiang region. President Biden wants to take a slightly different approach to China, but there's still a lot of tensions in the relationship that we saw emerge during the recent talks between senior officials on both sides. Now, that said, I think the Chinese leadership is both wary of the United States, but not quite sure where the cards are going to fall in the end. In other words, just how far and just how intense is this tension going to be? You know, Xi Jinping has been putting out these rather mixed messages about where the world is, is headed and where China-US relations is headed for precisely that reason. East is on the rise and the West is on decline. He's also reminded officials, though, that the United States, the West, remains very re resilient and strong and should not be underestimated. So I think what we see here is a Chinese leadership which is trying to size up. First of all, where is the Biden administration and its allies headed on China? But also where is the world as a whole headed as well, which includes factors such as how quickly our economy is going to revive. As they revive, are they going to be turning more to the United States as a, as a partner? Is it going to be China? In these parts of the world, particularly Southeast Asia, Latin America, parts of Europe, is China going to be able to build on its recent success with what you call vaccine diplomacy to build stronger relationships? Or is the United States going to step up and you know, have a stronger game when it comes to building relationships in those regions? So I think for all of those reasons, I hesitate to tell you what the Chinese leadership is thinking because I think they're still actually trying to think through where things are headed as well. Mm. Now, in the shorter term, of course, there is a lot of tensions in the relationship that's likely to continue. I think longer term, the leadership wants to chart a course forward for China, which is less reliant on the United States and avoids conflict insofar as that's possible. Mm. And in the meantime, I imagine that uh, Joe Biden, while he wouldn't have enacted the tariffs that Trump has, is sitting on a large amount of leverage, essentially. I think part of it also may be just the, the state of politics in Washington at the moment, in which any effort to work more cooperatively with China on, say, climate change or other issues, or to make concessions on China on some of those issues, is always going to be loaded with political considerations as well and the potential that the other side is going to come out and criticise you for being 
too soft on what many people in the United States see as a foe now. Mm. So domestically, next year is a big year for not just Xi Jinping, but for all of China, I suppose, because you've got the 100th year party of the Communist Party coming up. Uh, You've got China hosting Olympics, Mm -hmm. the Winter Olympics, and a question mark over term limits coming up as well. It's really all being choreographed to lead up to later next year, later 2022, when the Chinese Communist Party will hold its every five years Communist Party Congress. Now, these Communist Party Congresses happen less frequently than National People's Congress. And there are also the events when there's this uh, five-yearly transition of power. And if Xi Jinping was going to follow the precedent set by his predecessor, he would be stepping down as leader. Mm. What we're likely to see is probably Xi Jinping to go on for another five years in power. But whether he does that and who he chooses to be part of his next leadership team creates all sorts of uncertainties for domestic Chinese politics, of course, for the world as a whole as well. And in particular, one of the big questions is going to be, is that new leadership team going to include an official or possibly two or three officials who are going to be his heir apparent or vying for that particular position? So that's the reason why next year is so important for China. A lot of leadership issues come up, even if we assume that Xi Jinping stays in power. So all of those big propaganda events that you mentioned, the uh, centenary of the Communist Party founding in uh, July this year, the Winter Olympics next year, I think are going to be very much choreographed to put Xi Jinping to the fore, to establish the authority and promote the reputation of the party so that there's this air of confidence going into the party congress that will be a useful political asset for Xi Jinping. Mm. And, I, and I guess a, um, a rapid and effective pandemic recovery is, is all just part of that. It's another tool to put it on. Yes, a very good point. I think getting over the pandemic quickly helps that, that along. As an extension of that, I guess, you are sitting in Sydney covering all of these events that are going on in China, uh, having been one of the many international journalists who got kind of pushed out a bit and visas are not renewed and off you go back to where you came from. Mm -hmm. So can you tell me what's that experience like for you having lived and worked in China for so long to come back to Australia and cover China from there for an American newspaper? And, uh, and, And are you hopeful to be there and to cover the events on the ground next year? I do sometimes look at the date on my watch and remind myself that a year ago I was Mm. I was still in Wuhan and still wondering what would happen afterward and if I could stay in Beijing, stay in China. As it turned out, after I left Wuhan, I was told that I would have to leave China and that my uh, visa would not be renewed. And so I find myself working from the southern suburbs of Sydney now, uh, an unexpected change in scenery for me. What to say about working from Australia? Well, Well, first of all, Me and my colleagues in the New York Times have been forced to leave China, as well as other colleagues from other American newspapers. And I'm sure the Australian journalists who have been uh, obliged to leave China as well, I think all of us widely would like to be back there and reporting on the ground. I would certainly like to go back at some point when that becomes possible. Working on China from abroad is certainly not ideal. You don't get the same daily conversations and experiences that give you ideas 
the stories that give you a sense about what people are talking about, what they care about, what they like, what they grumble about. It's not impossible to have those conversations or to get those impressions, but it becomes a whole lot more difficult. Mm. And so the longer that we're held out, the more difficult that becomes. Uh, we're certainly committed to vigorous and, and unbiased reporting on China wherever we're working from. It means working the phones a lot harder. It means following Chinese social media a lot more closely. It means reading things a lot more. And of course, we have a, a very large population of recent migrants from China and Australia now. It's much easier to have conversations with people who are interested in China, from China, caring about China, following closely what's happening there. So there is that plus about being in Sydney, and I'm sure the same applies to Melbourne these days too. All right. We will uh, now turn to a couple of questions from the audience. We'll turn firstly to Graham McMillan. Chris, it's been reported that uh, China is supporting the military junta in Myanmar. What would be the strategy behind that if it is true? Graham, I'm, I'm going to give you a very terse answer because um, China-Myanmar relations are a very complex issue. I cover a lot of news, but China-Myanmar hasn't been one of them recently. From what I have been reading from colleagues, I think China's position on the military takeover in Myanmar has been, what's the word to use, a little bit ambiguous or multi-sided. I don't think they were entirely prepared for the military takeover. I don't think it was entirely within their plans or anything like that. But I think one abiding principle of Chinese diplomacy in countries like Myanmar, and the same applies to countries like, say, uh, Pakistan and others across Asia, is that whoever is in power, we're going to try our very best to be friends with them. So insofar as the Chinese government now sees the Myanmar military is prevailing in the turmoil there, I would be fairly confident that the Chinese government, whatever its internal misgivings about the military takeover, is not going to push that message too far. As I said, I'm not an expert on these issues, so I think I'll leave my comments on Myanmar right at that, Graham. All right, so the next question that we've got for today's session is from friend of the podcast, friend of Chris, uh, Rowan Kallick. Uh, Rowan. Yes, hi, Chris. Great to see you. Uh, my question is, why do party leaders continue to view questioning about the origins of the pandemic as such a dangerous, perhaps still existential threat? And will those leaders view their handling of the World Health Organization inquiry, which limited access to some data and people in China as a success, even though it's also exacerbated criticism of the WHO leadership in the process. So questions about why it's such a big deal that people should question the origin of the pandemic and China and the WHO. Uh, good to hear from you, Rowan, and a very good question, of course. I think the general answer to that question has to begin with what happened early last year. China can claim considerable success in suppressing the infections once it acknowledged that an outbreak had occurred in Wuhan and once the gravity of the situation became fully clear. But before then, particularly in late 2019 and early 2020, there were a series of missteps and mistakes by Chinese government officials at various levels that 
allowed what may have been a fairly contained outbreak to spread faster and, in a sense, to slip out of the control of officials in Wuhan, the central Chinese city where it began. Now, I think that's become such a sensitive issue for the leaders for a number of reasons. One of those is we have a particular leader in power in, in China now, Xi Jinping, who does place such a premium on being a, you know, a figure of power, a figure of almost omnipotent infallibility. And so even limited questions about government missteps early in the outbreak seem to carry this political charge for the leadership that they may not have in other political settings. I think also part of that is if, if you go back and look at the tea leaves of early 2020, Xi Jinping did make statements in February in which he said he'd been advised about the outbreak in early January. Now, exactly what he was told, exactly what um, he understood about the potential threat of the virus at that point, uh, they're questions that we don't have clear answers to. But even so, what we do know is the Chinese leadership was aware of this outbreak from early January. And so there's always this sensitivity about these questions about what were you told? Why didn't you act sooner? Why didn't you alert the public sooner and more loudly? Why were officials allowed to go on repeating this message right up until later into, in January that the virus didn't appear to spread easily? And so those questions still carry quite a a big political charge internationally, but also in China. So I think it's almost the instinctive inclination of the Chinese leadership, I know, to shrink in when those questions are raised. And there's also an inclination within the Chinese political system to wrap yourself around comforting theories, conspiracy theories that suggest that the virus may have emerged elsewhere from frozen food, from visiting American personnel, from anywhere but within China, even if it was entirely natural spread to begin with. So I think for all of those reasons, the fact that the prestige of Xi Jinping and the Communist Party are at stake, those issues still remain sensitive. The WHO initial report has just been coming out in the past couple of days. I have to say I haven't been able to read through all 400 pages yet. It does seem to be like a, a fairly thorough piece of work done within the limitations allowed by the Chinese government, done within the limitations of a fairly short span of time. I think the big question now is whether scientific researchers are going to be allowed to build on that, to do work on the ground in China that's going to let us to understand much more clearly how this virus spread, and in particular how it spread from animals to human beings. We'll give the final question now to uh, Xinyu Han. Uh, apologies if I mispronounced that, uh, but we'll allow you to talk and ask your question to Chris. Sorry, my name is Katalia Han. And my question is, how do you view China's economic recovery plan for post-pandemic period? Because as per The Economist, lots of people describe China's economic measure taken as FIFO, which is first in, first out, just like accounting principles. So do you think if the Chinese approach can be applied to the West, especially in Australia. Thank you. I'm sure there's there's lessons there at a broader level in that, um, you know, other countries, I think in a, in a way Australia's learned this as well or learned on its own, that if you respond quickly to these outbreaks, there can be initial pain, but it also allows for life in the economy to restart more quickly than it would take if, for example, you took the path taken, say, by the United States and Europe and just let the virus spread less contained. 
I think that's one lesson that China offers. I think part of your question was also getting back to how China's positioned itself for a post-pandemic recovery as well. What we have seen coming out of last year um, uh, from the leadership under Xi Jinping is, is a series of plans and announcements where I think China wants to do two things. First of all, part of its strategy, as you say, is to first in, first out, emerge from the pandemic faster than other major economies and to revive faster. Part of what China wants to do, and it's become clearer with the National People's Congress in March and the five-year plan that emerged from that, is also to build resilience in the Chinese economy so that the Chinese economy is going to be increasingly less dependent, especially in technology, on other countries that may use that technology to potentially stifle China's economic development or to use it as a political uh, lever against China. So this whole theme of um, technological self-dependence has become much more important in Chinese political rhetoric recently. And I think we can expect it to go and become much more a part of uh, economic policy, which it has been for a, a decade or more already, but I think it's going to become an even more pronounced part of policy under Xi Jinping. Whether those um, strategies can be applied for other countries, I think is a much bigger question. I think we've seen the United States not exactly replicating Chinese policy on technology, but becoming much more of aware, much more sensitive about the need or the desire to protect its technological crown jewels. So I'm not quite sure that on that point, Australia is going to be copying China, but certainly the United States is, if not copying China, then responding and reacting and adapting to China in a way that I think is going to make a big difference in how the world is in, in coming years. Well, thanks very much for that question. We do have a question here from, I believe, uh, former Ambassador Colin Hesseltine. Yeah, look, another foreign policy question and one that sort of gets to this uh, interesting question these days as China increasingly projects itself as uh, the most desirable uh, international model for other countries in terms of their development. Now, we've just seen uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi visit the Middle East. Uh, it seems he got some positive support from Saudi Arabia, especially on uh, Xinjiang. He also signed a big long-term deal with Iran. These two countries are, of course, arch enemies. It's also interesting that uh, it has both India and Pakistan in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, also two arch enemies. So my question is, how long do you think China can manage to juggle these complex relationships or at least get away with it? Very good question, Colin, and you'll expose my ignorance on foreign policy again. Now, how long can keep China keep up this juggling act? If I were to give you an honest answer, I would, would have told you they could keep it up until about five or ten years ago. <laughs> In other words, it, it's one of those paradoxes or features of Chinese foreign policy that I think even ten years ago we were writing stories about how long can China keep up this um, friend of all sides game in the Middle East or in South Asia or, or even Southeast Asia in some ways. But still the game continues. You know, part of that reflects that compared to say five or 10 years ago, China is so much economically more important for these regions now. The United States is still certainly the, the world's biggest economy, but when it comes to energy consumption, China 
as an international player has become so much more important for the Middle East, including Iran, including Saudi Arabia, of course. So both of those countries, uh, whatever their bilateral tensions, have some stake in maintaining decent relations with China. I think part of the assumption that goes behind how we think through these issues is when is China going to start establishing conventional alliance relationships, as we see with the United States, for example. But I think part of it has to be rethinking what China's foreign policy is going to look like, even when it becomes possible for it to quite freely choose who its friends and who its enemies are in the world. On that note, I believe uh, we've come to the end of the podcast. So, uh, Chris, thank you very much for your time tonight. Yes, uh, very interesting set of questions. I've much enjoyed it. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia. If you like this podcast, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may cast your pod. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. Uh, you can follow La Trobe, Asia on Twitter. We are at La Trobe, Asia. And you can follow Chris on Twitter. He is... Oh, it's a Chinese name. It's Chu Bai Liang. C-H-U-B-A-I-L-I-A-N-G. All right. Thanks very much for your time tonight, Chris. Thanks, everyone, for attending. And uh, I'm Matt Smith, and thanks very much for listening. <laughs>